Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. It was started by Padre Gautuma and me, Paul Doran, in the Black Box in Belfast in 2011. And we love it. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. When I was back on the road this week, a return visit to Limavady's Roe Valley Arts Centre for the Steinbeck Festival, our first visit in two years. I bet most of you didn't know about John Steinbeck's connections to that part of the world, so here's a little trivia for you. Turns out his grandfather was from there and appears as a fictionalised version of himself in East of Eden. And Steinbeck himself visited the area in 1952. So, there you go. The evening was hosted brilliantly by the Centre's Arts Officer, Esther Elaine, but as this is my podcast, I've edited out all her bits. Well, she might pop up at some point. So here are three stories from Friday the 18th of February on the theme Dreams. And first up is first-timer Willa Murphy. I died last night. My grandmother announced her death on a bright June morning in 1989. She was seated in her wheelchair, parked on a sunny patch of Persian carpet inside Briarwood Senior Care Facility in Geneva, Illinois. The busy geometric design on the rug served two functions. One, to give visitors a sense of a tasteful domestic space, a respectable home away from home, rather than an institution designed to manage the decaying and the dying. And two, to hide the stains of food, drink, and bodily fluids that inevitably flow from the decaying and dying. Outside the parlor's safety-locked window, the blonde cornfields of Kane County stretched and waved. These fields had been the backdrop to Grandma's life, where on sweltering summer days, she played hide-and-seek in their shady cloisters with her sisters, where every August she delivered egg sandwiches and milk to the harvesters on her father's farm where she and RJ courted and discovered amidst the golden ears of sweet corn a secret shelter from curious eyes, and where, back in May, she was found by the Briarwood staff wandering naked, clinging to corn stalks, calling for her sisters, Margaret, Cecilia, Louise, Riri, Lillian. In her final years, my grandmother suffered from Parkinson's disease, Besides the tremors, the symptoms of the shaking palsy, as it was once known, include increasingly violent, vivid, and surreal dreams. Dreams of falling, dreams of being chased, dreams of wolves and snakes and fire, dreams of dying. And in a cruel irony, the side effects of certain medication for Parkinson's include nightmares and hallucinations. On top of that, many patients lose the safety net of paralysis that accompanies sleep. So they act out their frightening dreams, kicking, punching, scratching, screaming, wandering. The inability to be still reaches, it seems, even into the deepest sleep and dreaming hours. Thus, Grandma ended up in the cornfields at 3 a.m. calling for her sisters, wondering why she couldn't find them in their old hiding places. Dreams colonized her waking hours, so it became difficult to know where her memories ended and her dreams began. Perhaps the medication stopped the shaking but stirred up the dreams. Or did the quaking help loosen and scrape up memories baked hard? Either way, this mix of condition and cure 
had a singular effect. Grandma was in a permanent state of dream vision, like some character in a medieval allegory or like an Emily Dickinson poem on unsteady legs. She existed in a space between waking and sleeping, between life and death, between the ordinary and the extraordinary. And whenever I visited her that summer, I would catch a glimpse of the strange borderland she inhabited. As I propelled her chair through the nursing home gardens in the cool shade of the elephant eye corn, her dreams spilled out. When she gave notice of her death that morning, her delivery was detached, matter of fact, unsentimental, but there never was much emotional display about Genevieve. The combination of French gravity and Midwestern self-effacement made her an unreadable text. The great stone face was how my brothers and I described her when we were kids, or the Sphinx of Kane County. Perhaps she learned early to shelve her feelings and just get on with the American custom of pressing on. Her mother died when she was 14, and she became surrogate mother to her five sisters, the youngest just two. I guess she was accustomed to being the steady backdrop for other people's emotions, other people's dreams. So when she told me she had died, it was the same way she would have reported having been to mass or having stopped at the grocery for another box of special K. K, as she called it, was uh, always for RJ, Raymond John, her mild-mannered husband of 57 years. Mild-mannered until dementia unlocked a dictionary of profanities from some back room in his brain, and he who had never uttered a bad word became the foulest mouth on Drexel Avenue. Where is John, J.R.? Where is my husband, she asked one morning. But Grandma, I said, you mean Raymond. Grandpa was called Raymond, R.J., and R.J. died three years ago. He was John, she said. His mother and father named him John Raymond. The priest mixed up the names. Raymond John, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Whether it was drunkenness or dyslexia that caused Father Casey to confuse the names was never clear. But in any case, the priest-fearing Irish parents decided it was easier to change their son's name than to interrupt the sacrament mid-flow. John, or Raymond rather, might not get the benefit of grace and find himself stained by original sin for eternity. Thus, J.R. became R.J., but, said my grandmother, J.R. was in my bed last night. Grandma was relating the strange Catholic erotica as we navigated the garden paths during one visiting rush hour. A man wheeling his mother approached on the opposite side. Lovely day, isn't it, he greeted. Not if you're dead, snapped my grandmother. Genevieve was the eldest of six sisters, known collectively as the Claude Girls. Their father, Eugene Claude, sailed from France with his brother Albert in 1876, shaking the dust of Europe from their boots and chasing the American dream of setting up a homestead, plowing the earth, raising corn and children, building a new world. Eugene ate four fried eggs every morning and learned enough English to succeed in the business of farming. But when he dreamed, it was always in French. He bought 600 acres three days' journey from Chicago, rich land that opened up to European settlers after the Black Hawk War erased the natives. He would sometimes find arrowheads in the freshly turned earth. He married an Irish girl, and in trying again and again for their dream of a son, they ended up with six daughters instead, Genevieve, Margaret, Cecilia, Louise, Marie, Lillian. The pigs didn't eat Uncle Albert. 
Here was another unfiltered report from Grandma's storehouse of dream memories, alluding to a gruesome farming accident that was part of the family lore. Eugene's brother was last seen on a July afternoon in 1901, straining towards the pigsty with brimming buckets of slop. When he never appeared for dinner, his wife went looking, but all she found was his sodden hat in a corner of the pen and 23 snoring pigs. The story goes that Albert suffered a heart attack, collapsed amidst the jostling pigs, and in the confusion and crush of feeding time became one with the slop. His wife stopped eating bacon that year. But Grandma clutched the arms of her chair and raised her hollow bones up to their full hunched height. He was not eaten by pigs. Grandma said he planted his hat there, quietly climbed over the fence, and headed west. He picked up a train in Big Rock. He needed to get away from the corn and the babies. He went to California. He changed his name to Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Grandma's dreams were never boring. She dreamed my mother fell down a drain on the farm and came up a manhole in downtown Chicago three days later. She dreamed her sister Louise's brain had been swapped with Nancy Reagan's. Aunt Louise actually was lobotomized, a not uncommon treatment back then to be calm, difficult women cutting out the monsters and demons. And the brain surgeon was Loyal Davis, whose daughter Nancy went on to marry an actor called Ronald. She dreamed Mrs. Lincoln came to luncheon with her and the other Briarwood widows. And in fact, 70 years earlier and about seven miles down the road, Mary Todd Lincoln, widow of Abraham, was admitted against her will to Bellevue Place Sanitarium, suffering from, quote, eccentric behavior and hallucinations. When I bent down to kiss Grandma on what would be my last visit, her skin was peachy and she smelled of talcum powder. She drooled a bit, a wizened baby. I'm falling, she reported, and dug her nails into my arm. Babies dream of falling and grasp at phantom branches in their startled sleep. Some vestige of when we slept in trees, safe from wolves. Grandma's dreams took her to places at once familiar and strange. Maybe they took her to places where she could be someone she was not or someone she was never allowed to be. Back in my college dorm that September, my phone rang early. It was my mother. Grandma died last night. Ah, oh, Willa, what a wonderful story. Thanks so much for bringing it to Town by Nine. Remember, if you have a story for Town by Nine or you want to know more about what we do, Check out our website, townby9.com. There's plenty of info there, including all our dates for 2022 and a few other bits and pieces. Next up, he's no stranger to this podcast. It's Bob Salisbury. Both my wife, Rosemary, who's here tonight, spent our early careers working in challenging schools, uh, places where social circumstances held many of the young people back. We were both passionate about uh, trying to level up long before the phrase became popular, I think. And one day I was in one such school walking on the corridor and a 15-year-old boy stopped me. And he said, can I ask you something, sir? And I said, yeah, of course, Gary, fire away. He said, well, I was watching a program last night about a vet and he said, I thought it looked a super job and I'd like to be one, but I don't know how you go about it. I don't know what you do. So I thought I'd ask you what I need. And I almost said, 
pop into my office later on because I was doing some low-level admin at the time. But luckily, I said to him, have you got a piece of paper? And he gave me a piece of paper. And I knew that uh, coming from his community, a Gedling, outside Nottingham, a mining community, uh, the chance of getting work as a vet, becoming a vet, was very tough. Very few people at that time had university education. And uh, I knew that it might prove a tall order. But I thought I'd take him through the requirements anyway. So I, I took the piece of paper and I wrote on the top, to be a vet. And then I thought, uh, now what do you need to be a vet? First, you'll need a whole clutch of top GCSE grades. They'll probably need to be all A's. I said, then you'll uh, have to show an affinity with animals. So try and get a job on the, the farm, the pet shop, the donkey sanctuary, um, work with vets. And I listed all these various things as we went down the page. And I said, then uh, you'll need four good A-levels, biology, maths, physics, chemistry, something like that. You'll need A's in all of them. Then you apply to a vet school, London School of Veterinary Science. Don't forget, I'm writing all this down in, in a list for him. Uh, that's a good one. Five or six years there. And then I wrote in capital letters at the back, right on the bottom of the, the thing, really big, strong letters. And then you'll be a vet, okay? And uh, I knew any student from this school would have a job becoming a vet. Um, it's a difficult course, and in England, it's still today the case that many of the students from private schools take uh, the, the professions. They know the system, they know the networks, they have the connections. So I knew it would be a tall order uh, getting there. But I didn't want to discourage him, so I said to him, well, there you are, there's the list of what you need. But, you know, Gary, it's going to be a fairly tough call for you. But, you know, the old saying, if you can dream it with hard work and enterprise, then you can achieve it. If you can dream it, you can achieve it. So why don't give it a go? And, of course, he was a very able student, he said, thanks, sir, put the paper in his pocket. And uh, then he ploughed through the normal stuff in school and, of course, got his top grades. I knew he would. Um, he worked in charities, all sorts of uh, animal uh, welfare places. He even started uh, breeding those huge dogs, Newfoundland dogs, with his, his mother. His parents were very supportive but he started breeding and showing those. He had a real love of working with animals and that showed through everything he did. Um, when he got to A-levels, he came to uh, tell me he was doing the four A-levels and he signed up um, to do physics in the FE college as well as doing it at school. And I said, why is that, Gary? He said, because I don't rate the physics teacher. <laughs> um, I agreed with him. I didn't write it, rate him either. It was the sort of guy, I, I tried him on five different jobs and he failed at all of them. He didn't like people and it's a bit of a setback in a school. Um, 
he came to see me on his fiftieth, uh, and he said, "I'm, I'm changing because I'm fifty. I'm not going to drive to school anymore. This is the physics teacher. I'm going to run every day." And I thought, "There's my chance. I'll run him over on the school drive." <laughs> um, it was incredibly agile for a man of fifty, so it never worked, but. That last bit isn't true. The rest of the story is, but um, predictably, Gary's completed university forms were just outstanding when I saw them, and I thought this this will uh, roll through because he clearly had a passion for studying uh, the uh, veterinary sciences, and I could not believe it when he was turned down. It came back saying that uh, it was a rejection. And I was so agitated and upset for him that I phoned the university admissions officer and I upset his day entirely. I said to him, you know, is this boy's done everything that we've asked. He's got A grades from day one right through. He's going to get four A's at um, A level. Why have you turned him down? And he said, well, the usual platitudes came back. We don't uh, disclose information about individual students. I'm not at liberty to tell you that. And I wouldn't let him go. I kept on to him. And in the end, I thought, I've got to somehow get under this guy's skin. So I said to him, has anyone actually read this application? Or have you just looked at the school he comes from and decided that's not going to be any good? And I think that really got to him. And he said, I'll have another look. I'll get somebody to have another look at it. Um, in the end, they offered him a place. And away he went to London. And he was there doing his vets uh, stuff. And we lost track with him for a few years. And then right out of the blue, Rosemary took a phone call from his mother to say that he'd finished vet school. He was now a vet and he finished the highest vet, school, vet uh, student in his year, which uh, we were delighted with, of course. But his, his mother said he's having some sandwiches and a few pints down at the pub, and he, want, he particularly wanted you and your wife, Rosemary, to come along to, to see him. So when we turned up, there he was, suddenly a sophisticated adult, now a vet, very confident, self-assured, and he came straight across when we walked in. And I said, Gary, we're both totally delighted that you've cracked it. It couldn't have happened to a, a, a person more deserving. And he said, well, I'm pretty pleased, sir. It's funny, isn't it? Adults still call you sir years afterwards. Rosemary sometimes goes to Roma where she was a, a, a secondary school head. And we often meet people there and they'll say, how are you doing, miss? And they might be 40 or 50 years old, you know, or, well, maybe not that, maybe not quite that. But. I'm backpedaling now, you see, but uh, I said, we're delighted that you've cracked it. And he said, oh, and by the way, sir, here's your piece of paper back. And I opened this paper and it was a bit dog-eared, but everything had been ticked all the way down where I'd written, and at the bottom where I'd written, and then you'll be a vet, okay? He'd written, 
I am a vet, okay? <laughs> that still brings a lump to my throat when I think of that, but there is a postscript to this story because um, I left the University of Nottingham when we came to live in Ireland in 2002, 2001. Uh, but I've kept in touch with the university to see how it's going. And I'd noticed the new veterinary college is going up the rankings in universities. And it's now rated in the top, well, I think the top one, but in the top three, certainly. And um, right, I wondered about that, but right out of the blue, Gary phoned us at home to see if we were coping with lockdown and uh, the plague and whatnot. And I told him we were both really well. And uh, I said, are you still London-based? He said, oh, no, no. He said, I'm the Dean of Veterinary Science at your old university in Nottingham. I'm building up the new vet school there. I thought I might have known that, really. But when we looked up his um, credentials, you know, afterwards, when he put the phone down, I'd needed a roll of wallpaper, really, to write all the publications he's done, all the research papers, all the times he's spoken at major conferences, and the accolades go on and on. And perhaps the best accolade of all was, I was talking to a, a, a young vet uh, student who's currently at the vet school in Nottingham, um, just outside Omer, and I didn't tell her that I knew Gary, and she said, I said, how are you getting on the vet school? She said, um, I love it. She said, it's a brilliant place to work. And the dean is there every day helping us. He's a terrific guy. And most students, I think, in most universities wouldn't even know who the dean is. But it gives us both a really warm feeling, wonderful feeling, really, to know that a dream that was conceived many years ago has managed to overcome all the hurdles and become reality. It's also a strong message to us all of what a privilege it is to work with young people and to uh, see that potential realized. So that's my story. Okay. Bob, what a great story and what an inspiration. The power and influence that good teachers have over people is amazing. Thank you so much. Now, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but we'd be really grateful you can help us keep it going, the events and this podcast, with a donation via Patreon or PayPal. Our overheads are low, but just now our income is a bit lower. There are links at the website, 10 but we also know that we're all being squeezed right now, and so if it's not possible, relax. The best way to support us is to keep listening, although we rating or review at your podcast supplier would also help. Okay, on to our third story, and it's from Anne McMaster, who's joined us a few times when we visit the Northwest, so what a delight to have her back. And you know what? I'm going to let Esther introduce her. The next storyteller that we have tonight is Anne McMaster. Let's give her a very warm welcome. I could blame Bib, 
the movie. That pig was a star. He was small, photogenic, perfectly whiskered, and cute. But my love affair with pigs had begun long before that. I'd sit quietly as a kid with one of the stockmen on a dark winter evening, light bursting from a heat lamp in golden shards through fresh dry straw as a huge grunting, grumbling sow gave birth to a litter of pigs. They were beautiful, creamy skinned and vibrantly alive. There could be up to 12 boisterous wee ones nuzzling in for milk and it was a delight to watch them tumble and roll over one another as they grunted with pleasure or squeaked in complaint at having been pushed from their warm drinking spot. Pigs were fastidious, using one corner of the sty to relieve themselves while the rest of the space stayed clean and dry. They loved fresh straw, pushing their snouts through the dry, fragrant stalks, tossing them up, then skipping through the fallen gold with tiny snorts. I'd often go down to the pig houses just to watch them play. They were intelligent, inquisitive and fiercely loyal. A young pig that chased football with me in the yard or raced over snuffling and snorting for a biscuit turned into a powerful, watchful and faithful guardian. If they loved you and trusted you, they protected you. I grew up, left the farm, left the country. When I returned, I began lecturing in an FE college and writing stage plays. I'd spend the next 20 years doing that, so pigs weren't really part of the equation. In my early 50s, however, I said goodbye to my students, left my full-time job, and I returned to the farm to write. My two elderly dogs, two sisters, had died after many years at the farm. I'd plenty of rescue cats, and still would, but now I felt like a challenge. Was this the right time to follow my dream and look for a pig? I didn't want a large white or a Tamworth. I didn't want to be breeding or rearing them. I just wanted one. I began scouting local classifieds to see if anyone had a pot-bellied pig for sale. A week later, I hit the jackpot. John, the guy selling the pig, was an engineer for BT. When I rang him on a bitterly cold February evening, he said that yes, one pig was available, yes, I could pick it up the following day, and would I mind calling over at 6am so he could sell me the pig before he went to work? I agreed, set my alarm for 4.30am, made a flask of strong coffee, packed a blanket-filled box into the back of the car, and set out across icy mountain roads to bring my pig home. John was waiting. Switching on his torch, he asked me to follow him. In the weak light, I didn't see a partially made cattle grid. Down I went, thigh deep into cold metal and concrete. John apologised. I hauled myself out and being a Presbyterian, apologised back and limped on to get my pig. We walked carefully out to a small orchard that had a wooden shed covered in fairy lights. They don't bother the pigs at night, John said, and they're cheap. 
and I can check on the sows without disturbing them. Two huge bodies lay under a heat lamp that glowed softly, while a muffled squeal came from right between the two mounds of snoring sow. That'll be him, John said. He doesn't half like the sound of his own voice. He leaned in and lifted a small, dark, wriggling, chunky pig. The squeals increased. He's the last one to go, John shouted. He's been left by himself after the rest of the litter went, so he's not really used to being handled. I smiled. I was frozen. I'd left half a thigh full of skin on the unfinished cattle grid, but this pig was mine. He squealed all the way home. John had carried him to the car and placed him in the waiting box. I paid him, and then the shrieking pig and I drove off into the bitter star-filled night. Once home, I settled him in a byre where a warm bed and bowls of food and water were waiting for him. The walking harness, $25.99 on Amazon for pigs not naturally blessed with necks, would arrive at the weekend. After a quick nap, I was out again, eager to see Wallace, as I decided to call him, and get further acquainted. I'd fashioned a basic harness out of binder twine, and while it wouldn't win any fashion awards, it did the job. After a couple of full starts, Wallace and I took a wee dander around the yard and into the back garden. Wrapped in my warmest coat, a mug of coffee in my hands, I watched Wallace snuffling through piles of abandoned leaves. I scratched his ears, gave him treats, and generally we had a great time. I checked that he was settling in well and eating his food, and later we went for another couple of careful walks. I fell into bed that night, exhausted but happy. The next morning, when I went to the buyer, Wallace was gone. The main door had been left open for flow-through ventilation, but the door to his, pa- his pen remained locked. I made my way around the farm, calling his name. No Wallace. I brought out his tin of treats and shook it. We'd only had one day together, so I knew he didn't really know me, but I continued my search. Over the next week, I covered miles around the farm. I tramped across fields, explored hedgerows, and walked down through the moss. I checked with neighbours and inquired at the local veterinary surgery. No Wallace. At this time, pot-bellied pigs were popular and collectible. I began to worry that he'd been stolen. Some 10 days after Wallace's disappearance, a farmer called to see me. Originally from Mahara, William, names have been changed, kept, <laughs> kept sheep and cattle on the land he'd rented locally. He'd call in every so often and I'd make us a cup of coffee while we put the world to rights. This day he was in no mood for coffee. The world is a surprising place, he announced to me. Yeah? I was still in mourning Wallace and no mood for optimism. I was checking the sheep today and you'll never guess what happened. I raised my eyebrows, feigning interest. It was like something out of that film. You know the one? He smiled at me happily. I froze. Please don't say it, I remember thinking. Don't say it. 
Now what should come rushing across that field, squealing its way through my sheep, but a wee black pig? Did you ever hear the like? Nope, I thought that's a new one for me. Anyway, he grinned. I caught the bold lad and I took him home. Fat as a fool he was too. He clearly liked the food I'd been putting out for the sheep. The kids are delighted. They've always wanted a pig. Do you know anybody who's missing one? I couldn't say a thing. I looked this happy man straight in his face, thought about his delighted kids, and I lied. No, I said. No one round here has lost a pig. For years, replaying this moment, I would blush with shame. Normal people lose their keys, a pen, a book they're reading, not a pig. Wallace lived out his days, I believe, in healthy and happy form, spoiled rotten by a shy 10-year-old and a hyper 8-year-old. I returned the walking harness to Amazon when it arrived and went back to sitting quietly out in the back garden where I could remember that time with him. We only had one day together, Wallace and I, but it was wonderful. That'll do. Thank you. That is the sweetest story, Anne, I have to say. Esther, you are so right, so sweet. Thanks so much, Anne. What a beautiful and kind thing to do. And what a great story. And thanks to Forgiveness, the title of this podcast, in honour of Wallace. And that is it for this podcast. We love to hear from you, so keep in touch with us on social media, the usual places. Also email at story at 10by9.com or via our website, 10by9.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes and tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It's the best way to get us noticed. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. For now, though, bye-bye. <laughs>